0: Chapter Eleven of The Flint Heart by Eden Philpotts. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven The Sad Stranger. After the ices, Ship, who was not interested in them, came and pulled Unity's Speedwell dress, which, I regret to say, tore it rather badly. He looked anxious, and it was quite clear that he remembered the time better than Unity or her brother. So, Charles inquired of de Quincey whether he might be permitted to ask the Zagabog his question now, and de Quincey asked the Snick, and the Snick asked the Zagabog, and the Zagabog said, delighted. He was always ready to oblige a human boy. Charles walked up the room and bowed very properly to the king and the queen and the Zagabog. Then he told them how much his father had changed and how nice he used to be, and how nasty he was. Charles went on to explain about the meeting and about the gift, and he asked if the Zagabog would be so very kind as to decide what this gift had better be. The Zagabog heard him patiently and then spoke. "'What is your father's name?' he inquired. "'Billy Jago, please, sir,' answered Charles. The Zagabog turned to the schnick and said, Look up, William Jago." And the Snick bowed, rose, and hurried to a large pile of bright red books in a corner of the hall. "'The Snick is consulting my volumes of Who's Who,' explained the Zagabog. Needless to say, I never travel without them. Everybody is mentioned. I am told that an earthly volume which goes by the same name is very incomplete and the excuse is that they never put in anybody who is not somebody. But this is no excuse at all. In fact, it is nonsense, because everybody is somebody, and I challenge anybody to deny it. Of course, nobody could. The snick turned up the jays and found Mr. William Jago. He then brought the volume, which contained Billy's doings, to the Zagabog, and the Zagabog read it and shook his head rather sadly. That rascally friend of mine, the thunder spirit, what a hot-headed boy he is still! To think that fut and fum! Here he broke off, and the fairies all stared and kept silence, because they knew not what was in the Zagabog's mind. He thought for a moment. Then he shut the book, gave it back to the snick, and spoke. "'This is not a case for a gift,' he said to Charles. "'In fact, quite the contrary. You mustn't give your father anything. You must take something away from him.' "'Oh, dear,' said Charles. "'He won't like that. He never parts with anything now.' "'He need know nothing about it,' explained the Zagabog in an old waistcoat of your father which hangs on a nail in an outhouse at merripit farm there is a flint heart get rid of it and all will be well thank you very very much sir said charles and i should like to say that my sister and me are terrible obliged to you and to everybody and we bid you a very good night and if ever it is in our power to do anything for the pixies I hope they'll tell us what tis." "'Capital,' said the king. Nicely spoken," declared the queen. Then Unity, just as she was being taken away by the fairies to put on her own frock again, said very loudly, "'I wonder if I might kiss the Zagabog.' The snake hurried forward. He was evidently rather shocked. "'Hush! hush!' he said. I hope to goodness he didn't hear you. The Zagabog never kisses anybody, and only very great people indeed are allowed to kiss him, and even then only the tip of his little finger." But the amiable old Precambrium Zagabog hated all this fuss. "'Come here, human girl, and kiss me,' he said. And of course Unity went and the Zagabog picked her up in his hairy paws and kissed her, and she looked into his green eyes and saw that they were really a pair of the most wonderful opera-glasses, through which she beheld all the past and all the present and all the future at once. Of course she didn't understand much that she saw, but even the little she did understand was something and it helped to make her the cleverest girl on Dartmoor when she grew up. It is only children of five or less that are allowed to look into the Zagabog's eyes, fortunately, for if grown-up people were permitted a peep, I don't know what might happen. So that great night came to an end, and Charles and Unity and ship departed. De Quincey bade them a friendly farewell, and his secretary said the charm, so that all three became their natural size again before they set off home under a night of moonshine and stars. It was beautiful in the woods, and the white spears of the moon-goddess trembled high and low, and turned all the young leaves quite gray, and where the hawthorn shone The moonbeams rested from their dancing, and made most wonderful patterns of pure silver in glade and dingle. All the party went silently along, and it seemed so still and cold and lonely that they began to get rather low-spirited before they reached Merripit. Charles tried once or twice to speak cheerfully, but he felt a lump in his throat, and so did Unity, and so did Ship. Though I believe between ourselves that the lump in his throat was only because he'd eaten too many good things at the party. Presently an owl began to hoot, and the sound was so horribly sad that Unity broke down altogether and sobbed and said I wa 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 wonder if we couldn't go back and ask the dear Zag Zag Zagabog to let us live with him instead of father." But Charles, when he found unity so sad, braced himself up to comfort her. He didn't understand why they were miserable, and thought it strange, whereas it was the most natural thing in the world, because after an extra good time nine people out of ten always do feel a little bit miserable, especially if they know the extra good time is never coming back again and that really is the worst of extra good times, that they never do come again somehow, and therefore many people, though they are probably wrong, prefer not to have extra good times at all, because of the rather horrid feeling afterwards. But now they met somebody who was more miserable than themselves. Suddenly ship rushed into the hedge near another farm on their way home to Merripit and began barking fiercely. Then a very strange, wheezy voice, rather like ginger-beer overflowing from a bottle, said, Spare me, don't, don't make any more holes in me, or I shall be utterly dished and done for. Charles called ship to heel, and then he in unity went to the hedge and found a mournful but exceedingly odd and unexpected object there. The thing was lying in the attitude of that famous ancient statue known as the dying Gaul, but it was not a Gaul, and both Charles and Unity hoped that it was not dying, though it looked very ill. Its body was oblong and pale gray, it had legs and arms about as thick as straws, and its nose evidently screwed on to the rest of its sad face. This nose was round and made of brass, which glittered in the moonlight. The unhappy thing supported itself on one arm, and there was an ugly hole in its side. "'Who are you?' asked Charles. Then, much to his amazement, the creature replied in poetry. Afterwards he found that when it was excited the stranger always spoke in verse but he did not know that yet and was therefore surprised and so was his sister thus spoke the mournful object oh i am a poor old thing and when my tale you hear your handkerchief will ring with many a bitter tear alas alas for my nose of brass and alas for my blighted career but once i was young and bright and gay and full of cheer and now i'm a regular fright and tattered and torn and queer alas alas for my nose of brass and alas for my blighted career after this the amazing object sat up and began to talk in the usual way my wretched tale is soon told he said in a word i am an india-rubber hot-water bottle i was made in germany and sold in london a lady who suffered from cold feet bought me and i always went to bed with her and warmed her toes she came to dartmoor last year and stopped at yonder farmhouse and when she went away again and returned to the metropolis she left me behind why why she forgot me i shall never know but i think she must have gone out of her senses the fault at any rate cannot be put down to me I was in good working order then. He broke off, sighed, and proceeded. The farmer's wife soon found out my virtues, and even the farmer himself did not disdain to avail himself of my genial society on cold nights. In fact, I always went to bed with them. They had no children, and you might almost say, without straining the truth, that they adopted me. At least that was my firm impression. But I had a weak spot, and it proved my ruin. On one fatal night, when I was fuller than usual, with hotter water than usual, I met with a sad accident and lost both my home and my friends. The friendship, indeed, was but a selfish sham. It could not stand the strain of my unfortunate collapse. They only cared for their comfort, not for me. It was undoubtedly the coldest night of the year, and so we three had all settled down together as usual, when, without an instant's warning, I burst. I trust I am not wearying you, broke off the poor hot-water bottle very politely, not at all said charles your story is most exciting i burst repeated the hot water bottle i would have warned them if i could but it was impossible there was no time to do so besides they had both just gone off comfortably to sleep in an instant appeared this hideous rent in my side and the bed was flooded with water about one degree less than at the boiling point it would require the pencil of a hogarth to depict the scene that followed the farmer's wife badly scalded leapt from her couch under the impression that the dwelling was on fire her husband also suffering from considerable surface burns awoke at the same moment but his intellect moved more quickly and he perceived in an instant what had occurred. With language which I will not repeat, he bounded from the bed, struck a light, seized me by the throat, and dragged me out. At first I fondly thought that he was going to attend to my injuries before he concerned himself with his own, but, alas, I was terribly mistaken he carried me still dripping to the window opened it and hurled me forth into twenty degrees of frost i have seen neither the man nor his wife since that dreadful night nor do i wish to see them no one has come to my rescue and i live here if one may call it living while the mice nibble me the birds peck me the thorns stick into me for pity's sake carry me with you back to civilization. I implore you, if you have hearts." The poor wretch rose and fell upon its knees before them. But Ship, knowing with a dog's instinct that there was trouble in store, kept pulling at Unity's frock to come on. "'I wonder,' she said to the hot-water bottle, "'if we could mend you.' "'You might,' he answered. "'You might try. An operation might save me. At any rate, you would find me useful in your games. I would try to play, though I don't feel much like sport. Anything, however, would be better than the society in this hedge.' "'Come, then,' answered Charles, and the bottle, with a gurgle of hearty thanksgiving, collected his remaining strength and leapt into the boy's arms.' In this position, however, he was not comfortable, so Charles doubled him up and put the poor soul into his pocket. Then he and Unity set off running for home. Already the dawn was glimmering over the moor, the moonlight was dead, and the cuckoo had begun to call sleepily from the cuckoo rock, his favorite perch near Meribut farm. In the yard the children met their father and John who was grown up. Both were in a great fright, and when they saw Charles and Unity in ship, they relieved their feelings by being fearfully cross with all three. Mr. Jago took Charles and cuffed his ears till they were redder than the sky. Then he opened a stable door and thrust him in, and then he whipped Unity, I am sorry to say, and pushed her into the stable after Charles. He locked them both up there, and told them they need not expect any breakfast or dinner or tea that day. Meanwhile, John had kicked ship very cruelly into his kennel. After that, father and son went back to bed again, and Billy Jago told his anxious wife that the children had come back and were locked up in the stable. But though Charles and Unity felt rather sad about such a harsh welcome, and such a frosty end to their adventures, they did not mind much, because they knew that their point of view was good. To-morrow, said Charles, we will get the flint-heart out of father's waistcoat, and when once it has gone, everything will be all right, no doubt. The old cart-horse in the stable was lying down fast asleep, and Unity and Charles went close to him and soon slept with their heads on his stomach. And the poor, impossible, and too-ridiculous ruin of a hot-water bottle felt the genial glow of Charles, and it reminded him of the good old days. And he put his brass nose out of the breast-pocket of Charles, and said, warmth, warmth, there is nothing like warmth after all. Then he too slept, and dreamed of his pride and importance in the happy, happy past, when he was sold for seven and six, and began life by bringing joy and comfort to an elderly lady. End of chapter 11